Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula here with Hondo Gertz and Skylar Moore, who's Chief Technology Officer at U.S. Central Command. So excited to have caught Skylar while she's in D.C. to chat about what she's up to. And Skylar has such an interesting background, having served on the Hill as a senior defense and foreign policy advisor and spent time at DOD on the Defense Innovation Board and made it to Forbes 30 under 30 list. So um, lots to talk about today, Skylar. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So Skylar, um, uh, we often say with the show, we've got, you know, these guests with just this most diverse background. And then I looked at yours and I think you're the most diverse of all of them. Time in Afghanistan, time time on the Hill, time in DOD, now time at a, a, a combatant command. But but I'm more interested in what got you interested young and age of coming into the national security space and and what, what kind of got you on your way to this uh, remarkable career already? It's It's been a winding path, certainly. Uh, I mean, I was interested in foreign policy generally from a pretty young age. So going into college, knew that I was loosely interested in that type of topic, but um, was, was trying to figure out the flavor of work that I wanted to do. And I had the chance to intern at a different at a variety of different places. I took a year off in the middle of school to go and work for a year and got to see Department of State, Department of Homeland Security, DOD. And it actually ended with an experience where I worked at a school in Kabul in Afghanistan. And that honestly was the place where I, I knew certainly that I wanted to work on national security. There were, again, a range of foreign policy issues that I was interested in. Women's education was a large one. That was why I went and worked at the school. But when I got there, I discovered that Girls couldn't walk to school half the time. Sometimes they'd have to be pulled out of school because their families were under threat from the Taliban. There were all of these underlying issues that stopped me from being able to get at these other range of social or economic or other uh, topics that I wanted to dig at. I, I discovered that national security was the core. And so that to me was the first problem to tackle. And and my guess is you didn't have this all mapped out in in great detail 15, 20 years. I mean, I, I we often... I think some folks, as we first get into careers, you know, think, oh, you need to have your career plan and have it all mapped out. And and uh, and many, many of us, I think, are more opportunistic and look for chances. Is that what your experience was? One hundred percent. It was about seeking out perspectives that I thought were important to understand the topic better. So in the case of Afghanistan, I'd done research on it previously and had had mentors that were focused on it. But I felt really I, I felt that I would be missing a critical piece until I physically went there and I met people who lived there and worked there and just understood that particular perspective. And so I found a school and I volunteered and I got my visa and I booked my flight. And then I told my parents in that order. Um, but but again, that, that has been the progression of most of my career is seeking out the perspectives that I think I'm missing that will make me better at my job rather than necessarily having like a five, 10, 20 year plan. So, Sky, I'm always amazed. Something that comes up on our show a lot is the importance of being able to translate between different communities. And I'm always amazed at how deep you can go technically. You talked about foreign policy as an interest and in national security. When did tech come across your radar as an interest? 
it in a, in the same way that Nash, I found national security because I found it at the core of all the other issues that I cared about. I found tech because it was at the core of so many of the issues of national security that I cared about. I was looking out into commercial sector and learning about all of these capabilities that existed and then turning back to DOD and seeing all of these problem sets that I clearly could be addressed by tech that existed today, not five years, not 10 years from now, but today. And it drove me insane. It drove me absolutely insane. So you start peeling back layers of why can I not give this to the person who needs it so desperately right now? And then you start digging into these issues of acquisition, of legacy IT and the limitations that creates, of all of these other pieces where it suddenly gives you this very holistic view of the Department of Defense and all of its interesting and complicated facets. But to me, tech was so central to all of the answers to what we were going to have to fight in a war next year, five years, 10 years from now, that it it's naturally become the core of my career. Mm-hmm. And you've championed in all of your positions bringing commercial tech or scoping commercial tech um, to to national security and as core to national security, as you said. Can you talk a little bit about why that's so important, not just to problem solve, um, but given the national security landscape as well? Yeah, I, I want to preface it with there is no question that there is still a very important role for DOD internally developed capability. There are certain parts of our mission that are simply too unique, too exquisite, too sensitive to just push out to commercial sector. That is the case and will be the case for the foreseeable future. However, it is also important to recognize that there has been a fundamental shift in where the majority of exquisite technology comes out of these days. And the reality is that the bulk of it comes out of private sector. Gone are the days where we are the folks that created GPS, created all of the hardware that just created so so much of the technology that we all ride on now. There was such an incredible... Um, investment from the U.S. government right after World War II into the tech sector that we are now reaping incredible rewards years later. And so it is a good thing in my mind that so much of this technology is coming out of private sector, but it means that we have to fundamentally shift the way that we think about it from the perspective of DOD. We are not the 800-pound gorilla in the room anymore for technology. We are just one of many customers and we have to treat ourselves that way. Yeah, I mean, we we often talk about DOD having, having to shift from industrial exporter to modern networked importer and rapid integrator, right? And doing that means crossing a lot of boundaries. And if you're going to be a great integrator, you've got to have knowledge of what's out there. You've got to create the relationships. You've got to uh, seek opportunities when they bring themselves. What are some of the skills that you've either had and relied on or have developed kind of over the years to be one of these, I'll call super connectors that's really good at uh, connecting bunches of different things in new and exciting ways and 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 in some ways being the master at this uh, you know rapid import and integration of tech as opposed to exporter. I, mean, I think Lauren brought up what the core issue is at the beginning, which is translation, where in so many ways it feels like there is a language barrier between so many of these communities. Inside of the department, there is a language barrier between the folks that bring technical expertise and the folks that bring operational expertise. And then there's a language barrier between commercial sector and DOD writ large. It's just it, it truly is as though you speak completely different languages and cannot access the other person's needs or wants. And so for me, a huge portion of this has just been making sure that I go to all of the relevant communities and listen and then ask a lot of questions to understand when you say that word, what does that mean to you? Because you say it in one room and all this and everybody understands and is nodding and you say it in another one and everyone recoils and has this completely different reaction. And so 
being able to translate and help other people understand what is meant by other communities who all have bits and pieces of the puzzle has been very important. Yeah, and I can imagine uh, you had to learn some new translation skills going to a combatant command, you know, as, uh, as uh, you know, a really impactful player, but not someone who grew up in that particular community. How, how has that gone for you? And, and uh, what surprised you the most in, I guess, now four months into the, the new position there? I mean, to me, the, the reason that this experience was uh, so important and exciting for me to take on was because this particular language, the language of the operator, is in my mind the most critical in the department and is the one that has the most, uh, the most room for growth, I would say, for the department to take forward, in particular as it relates to tech. I think that we are just getting into that we, we there was the early stage of innovation for the department where it was just about shaking everything loose and saying hey the way that you've always done this for decades and decades it might not be the right way and then there was look at all of these new technologies and the potential around it and let's talk about the concepts around it and we have finally evolved to the place where we are saying okay we have the technology we need to put it into the field and so that is the point suddenly when there are operators saying hey, we weren't included in the conversation earlier. We really need to be integrated a little bit earlier so that we can understand and also use these tools and adopt them at scale. And so for me, this experience has been so critical because I am allowed to get that operational perspective, not have it myself, but be adjacent to it with the command. And at my previous experience with Task Force 59 as well, where finally I can understand what their true needs are. It's not about buying a shiny piece of kit. It's about buying something that helps somebody do their job better or safer. That is the bottom line. And sometimes we forget about that because you think of the technology as the end state and not the enabler. And being this close to the operational community is such a stark, stark reminder of got it. You guys have real problems you face every single day. This is not about some shiny piece of kit. This is about helping you get your job done. Yeah. And for those listeners out there, uh, you know, Skylar's the first ever chief technical officer at Central Command and uh, and a testament to the commanding general there of of recognizing that that's uh that's been an issue and, then, and an opportunity for them, similar to like in special operations where you get that closeness, which allows you to do some things uh, at a much more, instead of a serial, much more of a parallel, I would say networked approach. So Skylar, in the role, I know just four months in now, but you've been moving so fast and you mentioned Task Force 59, what you saw there. Do you think the major challenges are issues that can be solved through policy? You spent time looking at these issues on the Hill, or is it more cultural? Can you give our listeners a take of that issue? Sure. And I'll I'll first maybe give a little bit of background about what the task forces are in the context of Central Command. So we are a combatant command that are focused on the Middle East, and within each of the components for the services, we have task forces that are focused on innovation and technology. So for Third Army, we have Task Force 39. For Fifth Fleet, we have Task Force 59. And for Ninth Air Force, we have Task Force 99. And all of them are doing really exciting and incredible work right now. Um, I think that we've really discovered that in many cases, the authorities exist. It's just about knowing that they're there. And for our role in particular, you know, as a combatant command, it is not our responsibility to shape policy and to change policy. But we certainly can give our recommendations or our feedback on what is working, what is not. And I think a lot of the time we are simply learning about tools that nobody had known about previously. And then also having conversations about, is this that we cannot do this or is it that it simply has not been done before? And having that conversation with policymakers, having that conversation with our lawyers to make sure that we are conducting this in an ethical and responsible way. um, Those types of conversations have been so useful and illuminating. And I think we're discovering that we actually can push capability much faster than we have previously. It was just 
we weren't using the mechanisms available to us. Yeah. And, and again, so many people think of it or try and couch it as a technology adoption issue. It's, uh, it's much more than that technology, as you said, it's just one piece. Uh, and we often forget about the, on the art of operational innovation and, and the art of employing things in new and innovative ways or training the force in new and not, not just about the kit. It's about the capability. Um, have you discovered that seeing, you know, being part of one of these task forces now from your position that it's not just a technology, it's how, how do you bring everybody together? Absolutely. I mean, what I love about the operational community and the experiences I've had with them is that they will make it work with what they have. You can give them this most exquisite piece of kit. You can give them duct tape and a hand grenade and they will figure it out one way or another. And that type of attitude in many ways, I think, actually reflects what exists in tech sector of just that quick moving, solve a problem, move through, find your next problem, solve it, move through. The culture and the mindset is similar. Again, it's just making sure that they actually have the language to be able to speak to one another and explain what their needs are and what their challenges are. So absolutely. But then in addition to that, I think that there is... um, a different way of thinking about it related to tech that exists that isn't necessarily being think thought about in a defense context, where we talk a lot about defense technology, defense primes, and dual-use technology where companies are already working with the department. I think we collectively could, could and should do a better job of reaching out to commercial sector that hasn't even thought about defense applications. And the reason that I say that is because we found so many industries that actually share so many of our problem sets and have spent decades maturing their technologies to the point where We don't even need to then put our own dollars into putting into a lab and solving basic physics problems. They've created solutions that work right now. A perfect example of this is that Task Force 5-9, we were looking for long endurance UAS and maritime surveillance equipment in general. And we found a tuna fishing company that had some really incredible technologies. And I kid you not, I worked with tuna fishing companies more than I ever thought I would in this job because they had incredible long endurance UAS and they had buoys that were collecting data off the water and they just they had it hadn't occurred to them that there would be a defense context but they showed us what they had and we collectively just gasped because it was so incredible in the same way the agriculture industry shares so many of the challenges of having a large sparse geography that you have to cover the mining industry has similar challenges in terms of difficult communications networks that you have to roll through there are just there are opportunities to learn from other industries and leverage the technologies that i think we just haven't done as well before It's great to hear you say that and so relevant to the Ben's mission because we like to think about looking at best practices in the business communities and how they can be applicable to national security issues, not necessarily just selling in, but how can we learn from the private sector um, because they're often under the gun to innovate just like the warfighter. And so sharing some of those best practices, I think, is key to what we want to do and and hearing those success stories, too. So I think it's helpful for our listeners to to hear you talk about what works and and what doesn't. Um, But I wanted to ask, from where you sit now at CENCOM, what are your top priorities for the year? You talked about the importance of making sure the commercial world knows that. So maybe give our listeners a sense of what you care about most today. At a very fundamental level, I care about getting the right technologies into the hands of the people who use it as quickly as possible. That is the easiest, simplest way of putting it. A layer down from that is I think closing the gap between the technologists, whether in DOD or outside, and the operators themselves by whatever means possible. That means getting them all into the room to have more general conversations, but even better is if we are putting them in a more operational context where we have exercises, where we have software engineers sitting side by side 
with folks in a targeting cell who are explaining how they usually go about something and how manual and laborious that process would be. And a software developer can look at it and say, oh my gosh, I have a tool that will drop your time by 10%, by 50%, by 75%. And then there have been cases like that where you will have something like a computer vision algorithm where an Intel analyst was taking eight hours to review full motion video and that gets dropped to 45 minutes because you, you built the right tool. Those types of gains are what you can have by having them sat next to one another. Because otherwise, you have a community like in the technology community kind of guessing at what the operators might need. And maybe you'll get it right. But boy, what it, wouldn't you just get to that answer a little bit quicker if you just sat directly next to them and asked them about their problem? Yeah, it's back to this, you know, moving away from industrial point to point kind of transactions to this network uh, thing. Uh, and as you see a lot of these folks that come in, maybe they have some experience with DOD, maybe they don't first time, or maybe they're somewhere in between. What do you have any kind of from your perspective lessons learned of what works well and maybe things that uh, these industrial partners coming in, whether commercial or not, could do better that would help speed up that process and make it more effective? I think. Patience and humility is required on both sides. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I think in, in both directions, it requires a realization of we don't speak the same language and we don't fully understand one another's problem, but we both bring incredible experience that has to be recognized and appreciated by the other. Um, I think sometimes in both directions, they underestimate the importance of the other's experience or try to push too hard on their own. And it doesn't open up the space for them to have an open conversation where they're asking the hard questions that will actually get you to the solution faster. So that's why I think it's helpful to have roles like mine, like my teams, like Task Force 5939 and 99, where their roles are really to dig into that and say, this is our full time job. We are going to have those hard conversations. We're going to ask these questions. We're going to bang our heads against this wall until we understand what exact what is the actual value that you are saying your technology would bring? And then on the flip side, that's when we can see these companies come to us and say, oh, I understand your problem. I finally get it. I thought I kind of understood. I heard PowerPoints about Chad C2, but no, I understand what you mean. That's what you, you need to be able to see more maritime geography because you have insane amounts of smuggling moving through the region. You have one-way UIS attacks that are constantly going on and you have cluttered radar screens where you need to be able to identify it. Now I understand, but it's about enabling those conversations. But, but I think in, in a way though, if we're going to network, it, it also can't be uh, one person solve, trying to solve all the problem as opposed to working together. And so any tips you have either with industry or folks interested in this of, of how you look at it and, and things they could do better in terms of working together to solve problems as opposed to each wanting to be the one to solve all the problems? Yeah, I think that AI is a really good sort of case study in this where so frequently we are promised the full stack capability from companies who say, we are going to solve all of your problems. We are going to find every single piece of nefarious activity that happens in your region above, on, below the water, on the land. Um, and, the, and the reality is that they, they simply can't. A, like, mo modeling, that, that, that does not reflect the reality and precision of, of how models work and in what context they work particularly well. Um, and it will frankly make us look a little bit, with a little bit of skepticism at them because we know that that's not possible. What we are very interested in is when we see a collection of companies coming to us saying, look, we don't have everything, but we are really good at this one piece. I can tell you every single time a commercial tanker is doing something that is really off, and I will be able to point to you to that every single time. And someone else will say, I can tell you every single time somebody has AIS spoofing or that their AIS turns off and something is going wrong. And somebody else will have another piece that comes in. 
that combination and that willingness, frankly, and showing us that you're willing to work with other companies is incredibly valuable to us. In many ways, to be frank, given how long we have to work with folks and given the conditions we have to work in, your ability to be a good partner is as if not more important than having some exquisite capability that you bring to the table. Again, the breadth of what we have to do is too large for you to have the perfect solution. You simply will not have the one thing that's going to solve all our problems. What we will need you to do is play ball with us, play ball with other companies. And so your ability to do that is frankly more important. CENCOM has been so forward-leaning. You mentioned the task force work with experimentation and inviting the private sector to come and, and show off their capabilities and really stretch the legs of what they can do, which I think is helpful for them to have the collaboration with the user communities. Can you talk a little bit about what you're learning from that experience? And um, a, a separate question, and I think an important one, are you dealing with valley of death issues? Are these more prototypes and um, pilots that, that you're having trouble transitioning about kind of two questions there. It's, it's, it is fascinating to see it from this side because when my previous positions, both on the Hill and in OSD, we talked about the Valley of Dust so much and how to bridge it and what mechanisms, because we just keep hitting this wall where you'd get to prototype, you'd get to demo and then nothing happened afterwards. And it's like, what, what, what is missing? What are we missing? And I think what I'm realizing is it was that demand signal directly from the person who is going to pick it up. If you give it to them and it works really well for them, they will fight for it and go to bat for whatever you gave back up to the requirements community, back to the service, back to the acquisition community. But it's about getting it into their hands earlier so that they they can make that determination and they can fight that battle. Because to be frank, a company is not going to be able to, unless it has significant resources behind it, make that fight to bridge that valley of death. It requires an amount of capital that will allow you to simply wait out some of the processes that DOD has in place. It requires the capital to invest in individuals who will go forward and make your case for you. And not a lot of companies have that. But if you have a user community who has picked it up and used it and said, oh my God, this helps my job. This makes me better at my mission. Um, We will go to bat for you and we will make sure that that capability gets carried across the line. Um, what, What has been interesting for us is also, again, the way that the user community thinks about these technologies is not in terms of, I want to buy this one solution next year, five years. It's saying, I need to have this particular capability. I need to be able to have something up in the air for 10, 24, 48, 96 hours. I need to be able to collect a certain type of bathymetry data in the water. That's the way that they think about it. And then it allows for flexibility to say, whatever gets me there. I don't care if it's the traditional type of technology that's always been offered to me. I don't care if it's something that a tuna fishing company gives me, whatever gets me there. And so I think that flexibility of mindset actually allows for some really creative solutions. Mm -hmm. And are you seeing successful partnerships on the industry side? Are they coming together to deliver a full solution? Or is that coming out of these exercises? I think they're starting to get there because they're realizing that they can't really deliver everything because, they, you know, you take a look under the hood and you look at the sheer breadth of challenges that we face in our AOR in particular. We are uniquely active and diverse in the range of threats. You have everything from uh, violent extremist organizations to low level smuggling and piracy to state on state um, activities and risk of ballistic missile and everything else. Um, and it just you, you cannot cover everything with a single solution. And so if anything, I think that looking at the breadth of our problem set is in many cases inspiring companies to reach out to others and say, hey, we can handle this small piece of it. If you were to tack onto this, I think we could do something very special. So 
we, you talked about this diverse set of problems, some ways to get together, but ultimately it's also about talent. And I'm sure from your past experience, either on the Hill or in OSD, I think for a while there was just perception by many of the tech companies that they could, you know, you guys go handle that nasty national security stuff. We're going to just kind of do our own thing and, and, and maybe weren't interested for, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, my, my sense is that's changing. I'm seeing it. Um, what's your either uh, maybe take or observation to other young professionals coming up who may not, you know, have ever served in uniform? Um, you know, are there great places for them to help in the national security problem and still work on innovative technology? And what advice would you give them uh, to, you know, pique that interest and get engaged? I, I think you're absolutely right. I think I have seen a shift. I, I know I personally know a lot of folks who are in tech sector, no relation to national security at all. And over, frankly, over the period of COVID, I think it gave everybody a moment of pause to really think about the work that you are doing. You are sitting in many cases in an empty apartment, in an empty room um, with just yourself and your work. And I think it gave everybody a moment to say, what, what is my purpose? What is, what is the impact that I'm making with my day-to-day activities? And I think that many in tech sector have begun to look with curiosity at the national security community and realize, wow, there are some really substantive, meaty challenges to get at over there. I just spoke with someone this week who has such an incredible experience. She I blew me away with data science background from, from a range of different technical perspectives. Um, and she, she was saying, you know, I'm, I'm happy in tech sector, but I want, I want to contribute to a mission. I want to contribute to something bigger. We spend so such a large percentage of our lives working. My personal view is what a shame to spend that large of a percentage of your life working on something that you don't care about or that you don't feel like fulfills you or gives you gives you purpose. Um, and we have an abundance of that. Not to say that it's easy. And what I think that we can do as a national security community is be honest and open about the challenges that you will be stepping into. We are an extremely bureaucratic organization. The hiring process is a challenge. We can't match the pay that exists in most of private sector but we will give you incredibly meaty and substantive problems and that will be worthwhile. And if we can give people the ki- the, the tools and the skill sets to navigate the challenges of DOD, all the better in my view. Do you see avenues for people like her with that increasing interest to come in and, and support you or work with DOD and in the national security community? I think it is similarly to our, to the beginning of our conversation. It's about knowing the mechanisms available to you. I think that a lot of the groundwork has been done in the years past of folks really banging their heads against this issue of talent and saying, you need a cyber accepted service. You need all of these different mechanisms to help get people in faster because there are particular skill sets that you cannot wait a year to get. And so it's about learning what those mechanisms are um, and then also opening the door through other avenues. There are exchange programs that exist across programs to get folks out to tech sector, have tech sector come in and to better understand our own problem sets. Um, those are all fantastic exposure mechanisms. And then we will always take an expansion of mechanisms. I don't want to say that we solve this problem. I will happily say we will take any and all more mechanisms that will let us get that talent on board faster. I, I think another and, and again, it's hard to um you, you talked about humility. It's hard to get these networks working if where there's just complete lack of knowledge. You know, if you once you build the knowledge up, then you can build the respect up. Once you have the respect, then you can build the trust. Uh, I I hear many worried about coming in to support 
um, you, Skylar, or somebody else. So it's going to change me. I'm going to, I can't be myself. I can't bring my talent to bear. Um, I think the DOD is doing better in that regard of being able to bring in diverse sets of skills without feeling they have to change the people to uh, to be accepted. What's your sense? I mean, you're you're a great example of that. Stepping in a combatant command, you know, largely at war. Do you you think the DOD is getting better at leveraging talent as they come, not as they want to shape them into? I think that the last ten years really has been a humbling experience for the department of both recognizing we are not, you know, we are not the center of the universe for technology, but also there are other countries and competitors that are moving really quickly. And it's it's shaken us in, in our previous faith that we were always miles and miles ahead. And while it is it is something that we have to now focus on and address, I think in many ways it's actually opened the door for us to allow for different types of folks to come in who may not necessarily have the traditional background to have conversations where we say, hey, I don't know about that. I really I need you to explain that this technology, I need you to explain this type of operation that I simply wasn't aware of previously. I need to acknowledge my own gap in knowledge and I ask that you fill it as best you can. Um, I Again, the last 10 years has been difficult. It's been fascinating to watch the progression of the innovation discussion inside the department, particularly for the last five years. But I think it's laid the groundwork for us to actually allow some of these people to come in more successfully. You remind me, too, with something we talk a lot about on the show, especially the private sector right now is uh, facing a pretty complicated global environment where globalization is is changing and shifting and they're trying to figure out where to operate, where to pull out. Um, how is the command thinking about international partnerships during this complicated global time? It, it is the core of what we do. We are people, partnerships and innovation are the three cornerstones of what we do at the command. Um, General Carolla has always made that clear. And the partnerships are so, so key. Nothing we do is alone anywhere in the world, but is particularly in our region. Uh, we have to be hand in hand. And it's um, it, it's interesting and it creates an opportunity space, particularly for technology, because so many of these technologies are new enough that we can learn about them and train on them and integrate with them together with partners. And so, you know, Task Force 59, Task Force 39, Task Force 99 have liaisons from other countries who are sitting with them and learning about these technologies at the same time and at the same rate. And that is such a wonderful opportunity, again, for true interoperability. We talk about interoperability a lot. But so rarely do we have a case where you can do a genuine, genuine partnership. We can't ask a country always to buy a $3 billion destroyer, but we can ask them about unmanned surface vessels and whether they can have one out or whether they can have an anomalous behavior detection algorithm that they have an account for and that we're collectively watching together. Well, on the note of partnerships, um, because it's such an important one, I want to say thank you for coming on and talking about your priorities. I think, as you said, the language of the operator is so important, and we have a lot of listeners who are trying to learn that. So your help in amplifying those priorities um, is, I think, helping us get that word out. So, Sky, thanks so much for joining us. We know how busy you are. Thank you for having me. Wonderful to be here. You've been listening to Building the Base a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.